Hey, Gabe. Hey, what's up, Tim? So, in Star Trek First Contact, the Enterprise crew travels back in time so it can help to build Earth's first warp drive prototype using, I don't know, like an ICBM in an old missile silo. What happened? They couldn't find an old DeLorean and a box of plutonium lying around? Tim, I think you're being super critical. Welcome to another episode of the Super Critical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and oftentimes nonsensical way pop culture portrays nuclear weapons. As always, you can listen to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, YouTube, wherever else you may listen to podcasts. And we're also on the internets at supercriticalpodcast.com. Check out that website for a full list of episodes, some resources on the show, and the occasional bonus feature or two. My name is Tim Westmeyer. I am someone who studies nuclear weapons and works on nuclear security for a living. And I'm joined by my co-host, Gabe. Gabe, how you doing? Hey, good. Uh, thanks for having me, Tim. And uh, yeah, I'm no nuclear expert, but I'm just here to uh, listen to Tim's crazy ramblings and try to make sense of it. And uh, unfortunately, Joel, the normal co-host, he couldn't be here today. He's on a five-year mission to Vulcan. And I hear the Wi-Fi is a little bit spotty there, so he couldn't join us. Yeah, well, it's, it's unfortunate for Joel not being here, but we are happy to have uh, on the podcast today over Skype, Manu Sadia, who is the author of the book Treconomics, The Economics of Star Trek. Manu, how are you doing? I'm doing great. We're happy to have you here because we need some, some real subject matter experts for Star Trek because we've covered nuke plots of Star Trek episodes before, as well as one of the latest Star Trek movies, the Star Trek Beyond reboot movie. But we want to get deep into the Star Trek canon here. So we're, we're talking about a movie where it's a much simpler time. It's a time where Earth didn't have to worry about warp drives, matter materializers, Vulcans, Romulans. It was a simple time when humans could just sit back you know, have a drink, crank up the volume on the jukebox, and build a spaceship out of an old ICBM they have in their backyard. <laughs> We're here to talk about the 1996 movie, Star Trek First Contact. All right. Yeah. Well, as the poster tells us, resistance is futile, so we couldn't put this movie off for much longer. Let's get into it. This is a, a film directed by the bearded wonder himself, Jonathan Frex who played number two, William Riker, on the show. He also directed, I, I didn't he's realize... Actually, he's number one, sorry. Oh, he's number one? Yeah, he's number oh, one. Oh, yeah. I, I took him down a peg. I'm sorry, guy. Uh, he well, is the first officer. He earned that because he's directed a number of uh, Star Trek movies like Star Trek uh, Insurrection, a bunch of the next generation. He's also number one with the ladies. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, I've seen the way he sits in a chair. It's very impressive how he kind of puts his foot over the back of the chair every single time. Mm. Um, yeah, but it was written by Brandon Braga, who started as an intern on The Next Generation before he brought up to an executive producer. So he, he's worked his way up the ranks as well. Uh, as well as Ronald D. Moore, who show ran the reimagined Battlestar Galactica, which I'm a big fan of. Ronald Moore is not necessarily everyone's favorite person in the Star Trek fandom. Is that true? Really? I've heard people badmouth him and Brandon Braga's kind of hijacking. I don't know, Manu, what you what you've heard about it, but that's I've heard they kind of hijacked the show and took really? it. Really? Yeah, like they 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 were kind of the brains behind Enterprise and all that mess and. They're amazing writers. I mean, they they also wrote uh, Mission Impossible. Like these are these are really top notch writers. Um, 
I, I, I like their stuff. Uh, Ron Moore, he's known for being the Klingon expert. Like okay. every big Klingon episode, like Ron Moore was there. I okay. mean, it's, no, yeah, and Brandon Braga, he's, he's, I, I have so much respect for for all he's done. He's a wonderful person. If you go on the internet and read through forums, you can find something bad written about anybody. Uh, I know that my opinion is not widely shared. <laughs> <laughs> well, but uh, that is okay. Well, I think a lot of people liked First Contact. It got 93% uh, positive rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Anything over 70 is pretty good. So in in the 90s, that's not bad. Yeah. Uh, Roger Ebert thought it was his favorite um, Star Trek movie, and he gave it three and a half stars. It was pretty good with the critics of the Academy. It got nominated for an Academy Award for Best Makeup, yeah. and then won, not one, not two, but three Saturn Awards. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a solid movie. I could preface by saying that I'm not so fond of, like, big action Star Trek. I'm more of a... But that's going to be obvious yeah. as we talk. <laughs> uh, um, I, I'm more of a, you know, the the, the mind game or, or or puzzle Star Trek than action Star Trek. But, you know, as far as entertainment, this is, this is fantastic. You're more of uh, a fan of the episodes that focus on economics. Or, or you know, weird stuff yeah. where nothing. I, I like episodes where nothing happens because, uh, you know, it, like it gets your brain going. Yeah. But it's... Uh, a movie is very different from TV show. Like you, you have to grab people by the uh, proverbial. <laughs> I guess, and, you know, it's, it's, it's like you have an hour and a half, so yeah. you have to do something. Well, we have an hour and a half here uh, to do the podcast, <laughs> so let's get started with the plot uh, discussion here. So, as usual, spoiler warning: if you haven't seen this movie from 1996, you should probably find it somewhere online or. Probably it's in your local blockbuster uh, Hollywood video collection somewhere. You can get it. It's currently uh, for you know for Prime subscribers on Amazon. You can watch it for free right now. That's true. That's, that's what I did that's last how we watched it. Yeah, perfect. That's great. That so is check. a compelling reason to sign up for Amazon Prime right there. Which is one of our sponsors for now. <laughs> <laughs> Two of our previous three episodes uh, that we've done on Star Trek, we've covered on the podcast. They had elements of time travel and nuclear weapons. I think this is an interesting well that the Star Trek universe keeps going back to, time travel and nukes. Uh, so we covered Star Trek episodes City on the Edge of Forever and Assignment Earth, which both dealt with these mm. these topics. I guess you, really the message here is you have to watch out for those uh, temporal vortexes. They just keep falling into them and then mixing themselves with the nuke world. It's, it's interesting that there are a lot more time travel episodes than you'd think uh, throughout all the series. It seems to be a crush almost. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's when they want to say something about the present that's very <laughs> serious and important. That's, that's what they do. So This movie seems like a weird funhouse mirror version of City on the Edge of Forever. Mm. Uh, that one had uh, Spock and Kirk sent back in time uh, because I guess McCoy got sent back in time earlier yeah, and saved someone yeah. who was going to who ended up leading this peace movement that prevented the United States from entering World War II, which allowed the Nazis to build an atomic bomb, mm. which allowed Nazis to take over, which led to no federation. Uh, it's, that's uh, and and Kirk falls in love with her. Surprise, so, surprise. <laughs> So this, but this time around in this movie, it's similar in the idea that they're trying to go back in time to stop the Borgs from altering history, the the Nazis equivalent of this. But this is more of an active stopping someone from altering the past as opposed to setting time back to where it was through uh, neglect. This is more of an active response. It's a Terminator type of story in a way. Yeah. Um, 
It's it, right. I mean, it's 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 six years after Terminator Two. Oh, Save never... the future. <laughs> Save the future. I never thought about it that way. That's interesting. Yeah. So in in Terminator, there's the robots being sent back in time to to prevent Earth from being able to fight against them. Yeah. In this one, we got our own robot combination: a human with robot parts, the Borg. Why don't you guys, as the Star Trek experts here, I'll stop talking. Lead us through the plot here, because we have the the big villain here is the Borg. And that comes from the television show, right? Yeah, so the Borg are, for, for those who, you've probably heard the term, even if you're not familiar with Star Trek lore, they're, they're kind of like the arch nemesis. So after the Klingons uh, stopped being the arch nemesis in Star Trek, they needed kind of a new arch villain. And the Borg took that on, uh, starting at Star Trek Next Generation. And again, it through Voyager, really. But Manu, you saw the movie actually last night, right? So <laughs> yes, <laughs> so you might be able to uh, walk through kind of the basic plot, uh, and I'll, I'll chime in. Uh. So we start with the Borg attacking Earth and the Federation. The Enterprise comes in, swoops in, destroys the Borg cube attacking Earth. But then there's a little piece of the Borg cube that escapes. It's a sphere, and it creates a temporal vortex, and it goes back in time, and the Enterprise follows it into the temporal vortex all the way to three days before first contact. According to our astrometric readings, we are in the mid-21st century. From the radioactive isotopes in the atmosphere, I would estimate we have arrived approximately 10 years after the Third World War. Makes sense. Most of the major cities have been destroyed, very few governments left. 600 million dead. No resistance. Captain. There you go. Ah. April 4th, 2063. So what's what's first contact? This sounds important because it's in the, the title of the movie. <laughs> because at 11 o'clock, an alien ship will begin passing through this solar system. Alien? You mean extraterrestrials? More bad guys? Good guys. They're on a survey mission. They have no interest in Earth. Too primitive. Oh. Tomorrow morning, when they detect the warp signature from your ship and realize that humans have discovered how to travel faster than light, they decide to alter their course and they make first contact with Earth right here. It is one of the pivotal moments in human history, Doctor. You get to make first contact with an alien race. And after you do, everything begins to change. It's the day when Earth uh, first launched a spaceship, warp-capable spaceship, and there were Vulcans passing by uh, on a you know, survey mission of gaseous anomalies or something like that. <laughs> and um, they detect the warp signature and they come back uh, to Earth and they say, hello, uh, live long and prosper. And this is the defining event in the Star Trek future history where the com- first contact with the Vulcans will lead to utopia on Earth. Hmm. Uh, and this is kind of, it's kind of an interesting time, right? Because Earth is in the midst of this post-nuclear uh, nightmare-type scenario, right? Mm. Yeah, they, they didn't catch us on our best day. No, I mean, it's it's uh, somehow Dr. Zephram Cochran, who's one of the main protagonists, scrapped together enough material and titanium and stuff to um, retrofit a Titan II missile and build a warp spaceship. And this is all out of a out of a small community around silos in Montana in the mountains. Like, they're rugged mountaineers, Hmm. almost like Ayn Rand figures, you know, like self-sufficient mountaineers who are building spaceships. (laughs) It's a little strange, um, but it works great in the movie. I don't want to nitpick. And so the Borg is there to actually, you know, uh, prevent first contact and take over Earth. And they, they are slowly taking over the Enterprise while the Enterprise people are down on the planet, or some of the crew is down on the planet trying to help 
uh, Zephram Cochran build his ship because the Borg, the first thing they did was to fire photon torpedoes at the silos. So suddenly first contact is in big jeopardy. Um, the idea is that the Borg, by preventing this first contact, they can they can alter human, the human race will not uh, progress on this path to becoming a spacefaring uh, species. They will stay kind of saddled here on earth with all their problems and they will be an easy. No, I mean like the Borg will take over earth and uh, assimilate everybody and make it a Borg utopia. Uh, The Borg is interesting because it's, it's really the exact opposite or mirror image of the Federation in the whole universe, you know, like they're the only other society in the galaxy that um, are kind of a post-scarcity society where the question of supply Mm. and demand is no longer a problem. They don't use money or anything like everybody's sort of work in unison. So they're, they're very much analogous to the Federation, but so it's the battle for earth once again. And of course the, uh, the good guys win at the end. (laughs) Uh, you know, as you said, Manu, there's like this battle going on on the ship while there's this battle on the Earth. So on, on the ship, I think one of the people from Earth ends up getting um, sent to the ship, uh, Lily Sloan. I forget exactly how she gets there. I think there's some emergency. And so she's hurt. And uh, they sort of take the, the injured onto the Enterprise um, based on the notion that, you know, they'll keep them sedated and they won't see anything. But then... The Borg is taking over the ship slowly, and so the doctor has to uh, wake up all the patients and uh, go into the Jeffrey's tube and disappear and escape. So Lily, she's with uh, Captain Picard through a lot of the movie, and Picard is... So I think the important detail here is that Picard, he was actually assimilated at some point. He he became a Borg and was... In the um, TV show. Yeah, yeah in, in one of the episodes of Next Generation. So he has this very special... Um, relationship knowledge. with yeah knowledge relation and and I think feels very personally affected by the Borg taking over his ship trying to you know impact humanity and I think the big metaphor here or the I don't know metaphor the um, the callback is to Moby Dick where he's yes. like this Captain Ahab who's obsessed with destroying the Borg at all costs and Lily through their conversation exactly yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And uh, Lily is an interesting figure because she's also the, the it is intimated in the movie that she's in fact the person who built the ship. Uh, she's like, oh, I was crouching for titanium everywhere. Hmm. And, you know, and she seems to be the like at least as important as Zephyr Cochrane in terms of who built the ship and who's got the brains behind it. Yeah, yeah. Well, he, she, she doesn't get a statue. So uh, some of my favorite parts of this movie are the interactions between Zephyr and Cochran, who, again, he's he's in 2063, and mm-hmm. a lot of the, our characters in the show are from, what, somewhere in the 22nd century? 24th. 24th, 24th. century. 24th century. So th- to them, this is something that they learned in elementary school and in their history books, yeah. and, and they, you know, centuries later have have this image of Cochrane as a pure figure, someone who is is almost saintly, like how we would look at the founding fathers yeah. of the United States or... No, yeah, and, and they're like, I went to Zephyr Cochrane's high yeah. school. 
<laughs> you know, and, and he's like, oh my god. And he, I mean, there there are these very funny things where where he's like, well, I did it for the naked woman and the whiskey. Yeah. Well, yeah, <laughs> he's like, a he's a drunk. He's I mean, in the movie, yeah. he's portrayed as this very flawed hero. It's like going back in time to meet George mm-hmm. Washington, and the night before they're going to cross the Delaware River, he's like, like wasted <laughs> with yeah, exactly, with women around him. You, you... I, I find it interesting that Lily, in fact, like it's really at least to me in the movie, it's very clear that she's the mm. brain behind it so so there's a there's a not so subtle actually very direct nod to you know there's always a woman behind it and <laughs> it's somehow yeah. the guys like they hog the credit but yeah. I, I i i like that i thought that's what it was very well done they could have you know turns that from cochran into a woman yeah but um that's no they couldn't because because canon because, yeah, he's oh, from yeah. he's he's a yeah. uh, he makes an appearance in one of the early original series yeah. episodes. Yeah, they pull him out yeah. of there. So also on the ship, the other kind of storyline is Data, the android uh, who's on the crew, um, is one of the most beloved characters on Next Generation. He's actually captured by the Borg, and even though he's a machine, um, they're trying to basically convert him or exploit his humanity, the humanity at least in his programming, mm. uh, in order to try to extract some uh, codes for for the uh, being able to fire the weapons. So Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, Data locked all the computers on the Enterprise. That's, that's right. At the beginning, when once it becomes obvious that the Borg is taking over, and so they're they they need to get him to release the encryption uh, of the computer so that the Borg can actually target the ship and destroy it. Uh, you know, have you full use of uh, the offensive capabilities of the Enterprise. Hmm. And so there's this whole game uh, between the Borg Queen, who's really the bad guy there. Yeah, and she's a great character. She's an amazing character, but it's almost it's a little forced, I think. It just uh, introduces a new level of complexity in the Borg that I think you know. I mean, they needed a, a hmm. it's it's a movie, it's an action movie. Uh, they couldn't do all the explaining that the Borg doesn't need a queen to function. Yeah, it, it is odd to figure out what rules they're playing with with this collective. Mm-hmm. They don't attack you unless they're told to, or if you pose a threat. So you can walk up to one of them, but as long as you don't you know, smack them in the face, they're not going to attack you. But they all seem like they operate together. They all Do they all know each other's thoughts? Like yes. if one of them sees that, so okay. It's the general will. It's it's Russo's general will hmm. put into a, a sort of a cyborg organism. Uh, it's very strange. It's, uh, it's very interesting. But then, you know, it sort of clashes with the notion that there would be a queen. It reminds me of uh, Animal Farm. All Borgs are created equal, just some are more equal than others. Yeah, right. <laughs> it seems yes. like they have some control. So you talk a lot about, in, in your in your book, Treconomics, um, about these ideas of, of scarcity and the, mm. the, the abundance of resources and what that would do for a civilization. And there's a lot of that in the conversations between Picard yes. and, and Lily, where they start to talk about what money doesn't have a role in the 24th century and... Yeah, because Lily is visiting the ship. I mean, or she's walking besides Picard, you know, uh, and and he has a gun, and they're trying to figure out where the Borg is, and and she's like, "Oh my God, this ship! Like, it must have cost so much to build." And Picard's like, "Well, the economics of the 24th century, the economics of the future are quite different." Um, I, I do an awful Picard. No, but, that's yeah. a pretty. No, that's a pretty good. The cool, rational. Yeah, exactly. Diplomat. I mean, it's almost like the best distillation of the economics of Star Trek you could ever get, hmm. and 
And of course, it's Braga and Ron Moore. Basically, in three phrases, say, well, you know, we're, we're no longer interested in money. We don't we do things to improve ourselves in the 24th century. She seemed a little dumbfounded. Like, it doesn't make sense to her. And there's a lot of that clash between her, Zephyr Cochrane, the people down on Earth, and the sort of the, the sort of almost Buddha-like figures, explorers who are altruistic and do things only not out of eco economic incentives, but I'd say passion or sense yeah. of righteousness, justice. That's why I love those um, time travel episodes, because mm -hmm. this is where you get like a much more clear understanding of what's the normative ideals of Star Trek are about. Uh, you see that in the in the whales movie. So the movie where uh, Kirk and crew go back to Earth to save the whales, and they're like, "Oh, they're using money here. What is this?" Yeah. And uh, <laughs> it's, it's it's you know like they try to go on the bus and they don't have change. It's very mm. funny. Um, <laughs> but it's it's this is where a lot of these episodes allow us to explore what it would mean to live in a society that functions on very different basis than ours. I think the first contact for that is wonderful because also, you know, there's a lot of action and it's very uh, entertaining. And at the same time, it carries a deeper message in the best way Star Trek can do. So, so while they're doing all this on the Enterprise on Earth, uh, part of the Enterprise crew is helping uh, Zephyr and Cochran rebuild his ship and they are able to launch in time. Let's rock and roll. Six. And uh, they they have a dramatic scene where the the rocket takes off with the uh, with the Phoenix on board and goes into space and they get ready to do the first warp flight. At the very last minute, the Borg fire some weapons at the ship, um, but Data at the very last minute, Data who's been uh, kind of uh, almost assimilated by the Borg Queen, she thinks she has him to release the codes. He thwarts the attack at the last minute and. Um, Picard and Data fight and defeat the Borg Queen on the ship, and the warp flight takes place, and the movie ends essentially on this great note where the Vulcans come and do first contact, thus restoring the timeline and, uh, and allowing humanity to uh, engage on the course toward the Federation. So it's a good ending. The Vulcans tell us about the amazing features of space travel, and they help us recover from the post-atomic horror, and we get to introduce them to homemade liquor and <laughs> rock and roll, which I think that's something that's highly missing exactly. in, the, in the Vulcan homeworld. You know, I read your book, Manu, and I, I must say I loved it. I loved it. It was awesome. One of the things I like the Thank most you. about it is that you kind of interpret that just because humanity gives up money, it doesn't give up its drive and ambition, right? It's just, just channeled through this different this different means of yeah improving yourself exploring the galaxy art culture things like that and i mean a, hi a hierarchy still exists right exactly and, uh, competition still exists it's just uh, different objects yeah mm -hmm. um at least that's how star trek does it the problem i think in star trek in general and that's where talking about nuclear weapons is very important is that there's no clear explanation on how you get there and there's no how to on how you get to that different type of social relations. And it, oh, there's a nuclear war, tabula rasa, it's, is really how you get there. That's all you get as a, as a sort of explanation on how to change society, which is extremely grim. <laughs> um, 
is, is nuclear war, as explained in uh, uh, First Contact, is nuclear war the only way to change society? That's That leads us perfectly into our, our next phase of this discussion. Uh, phase? Phaser of this discussion? It's uh, <laughs> is, is the nuclear discussion. So let's get super critical. I see two major areas of conversation that we can follow. Uh, if you see more, we can add, you know change and adapt as we're going through here. But the first one is that. It's the, the role of nuclear war in Star Trek lore. Like, does this have to have had uh, taken place, this gigantic nuclear conflict that took place over 30 years? We'll get into the details of it in a second. Does that is that necessary for us to reach that Star Trek utopia that we see in the 24th century? Um, and the second thing we'll talk a little bit about the the cool appropriation of nuclear tech in the movie, this Phoenix warp drive that was used uh, and built on top of a Titan II ICBM body. So so let's talk about this first section. And correct me if I'm wrong. I'm just going to read from research that we've uh, diligently put together. In the Star Trek mythos, Earth was engaged in a global nuclear war from 2026 to 2053 that resulted in 600 million dead, most major cities destroyed, governments collapsed, and humanity was left in a pretty bad spot. So over those three decades, conflict has apparently seemed to continue to happen. Um, the Vulcans, our, our friends in the Federation, saw that this war was happening, but they considered it a local jurisdiction matter. Mm. And because of prime directive, I don't know if that term was used by them, but the concept they wouldn't interfere with a civilization, a planet, until it had created uh, a warp drive technology. It seems to be the, the thing seems here. to be the norm, yes. I, I looked back, and there are mentions of nuclear war in the original series in several episodes. Mm -hmm. It's never fully explained at length, but there is a nu long nuclear war, according to the original series, so in the 60s, at the end of the uh, 21st century. Uh, which is also strange and interesting because the original series, you know, it's like the UN in space and mm -hmm. right. um, yeah. peace through space exploration and all that stuff. And yet there's still a nuclear war to get there. It's not this thing where we're going to pull ourselves out of it yeah. uh, through diplomacy, mm -hmm. um, which, by the way, is interesting. I, I, I was recently uh, trying to read this big book about inequality and the history of redistribution and um, it's by a Stanford professor. But the gist of it is that uh, major, uh, throughout history, major moments of wealth redistribution have happened in conjunction with major catastrophes. Hmm. Uh, so the plague, uh, World War II, hmm. at least if we look back as a way to sort of think of the future, looking back can be useful. The sort of very stable polities that we have in Western Europe today uh, are the results of World War II. Uh, and, and the kind of, when you think about it, we have achieved Star Trek, at least in Western Europe, mm. uh, in terms of quality of healthcare, everybody can eat, you know, except like small por marginal portions and, and uh, for which policy could actually make a big difference. Um, poverty is no longer endemic. Standards of living that we enjoy today, you know, in the West are very close to uh, post-scarcity. We still use money, of course, but we have achieved that. And we have achieved that in large part because World War II and there was this sort of great moment of reorganization, forcible reorganization of the world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm thinking 
my background being in economic history, you know, I think of Bretton Woods and the the post-war organization of the monetary system and the economy. We have achieved that. It's not completely crazy to think that uh, the kind of social transformation and global social transformation that you see in Star Trek would happen after a major war. Mm -hmm. Uh, because this is what has happened in the past. It's extremely grim. I, I don't want nuclear war to get to Star Trek. Yeah. I, I, I mean, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I wish it was a different way, yeah. So hopefully we'll do better. Yeah, I mean, it's clearly clearly serves as a, as a plot device. Um, mm. The details are kind of sketchy depending on where you look, and but this is super critical, so we kind of have to look at the details yeah. here. So um, in, <laughs> in the movie, they say that that there are 600 million casualties because of this war. And um, one thing that struck me when watching the movie is I, I kind of ran the numbers and that's actually really low. Um, so if you extrapolate the current world population to 2026, uh, assuming like a growth rate of around 1.1%, you have about 8.3 billion people. That's only about 7%. That's 600 million is only about 7%, which is a really uh, low number for an all-out nuclear conflict. And, and the other thing is, you know, most of that population will be mostly in Asia and Africa. Uh, so right, right. already is, right? Yeah, exactly. So, and by 2060, I think Africa will be, you know, sort of half of the world's population, something like that. Uh, I don't have the numbers in my head right now. So it's sort of a, a little Eurocentric or... Yeah, yeah. Western centric, uh, and maybe those 600 million, you know, they're on in Northern uh, America and uh, Europe, and uh, that's what happens. They never quite say, right? There's the Eastern coalition, exactly. And, uh, yeah, there's some vague, there's some vague, clearly some different, uh, like sovereignties and alignment relative to what we see now in the world, but it's never, it's never clearly discussed, right? Is the Eastern coalition China? I don't know. I mean, I they don't really think through all the yeah. uh, politics of launching nukes against each other. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's that, that's why they needed uh, us uh, on the yeah. on the payroll yeah, exactly. yeah. to get into it. If uh, only Brandon Braga had had the three of us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that my problem with this stuff is uh, I'll get too focused on that and then not the the broader messages and themes that they're trying to get to. You said you didn't want to nitpick, but that's kind of my job. Um, <laughs> So I, I think the the movie overall, the plot, uses the idea of a nuclear conflict, but really picks and chooses the consequences of yeah. those of those things. So we already talked about the the idea that 600 million people died, but they said most major cities were destroyed. So maybe they were evacuated. There's maybe a we don't know the type of warfare that took place. Was just mm. was this just all out nuclear conflict uh, against all cities and all military targets? Was it using relatively large bombs or, or these small tactical bombs that were used on the battlefield really don't know there's no description of all of those things except the fact that cities were destroyed which makes you think that they were some kind of larger larger weapon but as, as you were mentioning Gabe that the idea that seven percent of the population seems pretty low uh, well during World War two approximately three uh, percent of the world's population was killed That's in a conflict crazy. that only lasted seven years yeah let alone 30 years and every, basically a, yeah. a global conflict. Um, but I also don't understand why there isn't any sort of residual effects of nuclear fallout. Because they describe in, in the Star Trek lore, there were nuclear winters during that time mm. period. Not one, but multiple. So 
you can get into the science whether or not you think nuclear winter hey, is possible. They solved global warming at least. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The emissions are way way down. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Manu, for the uh, cheerful note. Yeah. Uh, but unfortunately, theta radiation is way up. Yes, that's that's a problem. The the other thing about the cities being destroyed. So you would think you know all the communities of engineering ex excellence that are around cities are probably gone. Uh, where do you get an education to actually figure out how to build a warp-capable vessel? Like, yeah. it, it takes, like, literally thousands of engineers to put, like, a tiny probe into space uh, and, and supply chains and, and programming and all these extremely complicated things. And we're not even talking, you know, a space-faring mission. We're just talking – I was thinking of the James Webb Telescope. Mm -hmm. It seems that you need networks – of engineers and, and centers of knowledge working in concert together to do that kind of thing. A project like the the Phoenix, so that warp-capable ship with, you know, uh, life support for three people on board. That's... Yeah, yeah. I, I don't see those mountaineers doing that on their own. I mean, no, that's, you, a great, that's a great point. You need a government or a government agency or, or you know, or a very rich person. Because Einstein says, like, you shouldn't be able to travel faster than light. To, so to be able to have that kind of project, that's like the yeah. Manhattan Project, several orders of oh. magnitude. And Manhattan Project had the full commitment of, you know, the U.S. government and and leading scientists and research institutions. Well, so uh, in the in the movie, they say uh, Cochrane says that he wanted to sell this technology to who? <laughs> you know, <who's, laughs> for what purpose? To who? I mean, what's the idea? What this world looks like? Let's uh, help to try to explain this a little bit. Um, it sounds like there was a very uneven distribution of the mm -hmm. nuclear conflict as well as the recovery effort. Mm -hmm. So I, I rewatched the first episode of The Next Generation. Uh, I think it's yes. encounter at Farpoint, and yeah. and there and there's a big scene in there where mm -hmm. this mysterious figure uh, Q sends the Enterprise crew uh, back in time to I, I don't know what they say exactly at the time maybe like around 2040 2050 uh, when there was this nuclear complex to see this a condition in place called post atomic horror where there were mock courtrooms set up to have trials judge jury and execution the whole thing's over. In a few minutes, because the all the lawyers have been killed, um, and you see this this is taking place somewhere. So there was this nuclear war, and some parts of the world apparently have not recovered from this. There's there's people with radiation sicknesses and mutations, and mm -hmm. there's even a guy in the 2050s, uh, Colonel Philip Green, who yes. tried to euthanize hundreds of thousands of people that were suffering radiation sicknesses to essentially clean out the the blood supply so that in the future that they we could have mutation free populations clearly it's happening somewhere just not in montana but in a way that's kind of realistic um i would say at least the dirty secret of it all right i mean either nuclear war or global warming is that the effects are going to be the the effects are going to be distributed wildly uh, differently across the globe some people are are going to do okay and they'll be there at the end game uh, so, <laughs> right? I mean, that's, yeah. that's, it's unfortunate, but that's the truth, right? Maybe all those who go into the bunker will yeah. survive. You know, mine four! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was a, that, that, the joke behind that in Kubrick's movie is in fact, uh, uh, you know, very meaningful, I think, that the effects are going to be unequally distributed. 
so that's what you see there. It's like maybe, you know, all these guys you see like with the jukebox and drinking and all that stuff, like they're all super duper Harvard engineers and JPL people yeah. uh, who yeah. retired to the provisional JPL in, in the Montana Highlands or something. <laughs> and and maybe, maybe they're drinking so much because that's their response to the horror. I mean, it, it's... There's there's a lot you could extrapolate from it. I mean, in the movie, the the whole colony they have it doesn't look so bad, uh, just no. from like a physical. Yeah, it looks fairly nice. I mean, except for their fashion taste. Yeah, <laughs> right. Um, I love yeah. I love I love the hats, the backward hats with the belt buckles on them. It's like yeah, almost but, okay. like pilgrimish. <laughs> but but then you know you see like Zephyr Cochran, he really drinks a lot of tequila, right? Where does the tequila come from? Uh, I mean, how do they procure that? Yeah, uh, mm. that means there is you know resupplying there are supply chains there are trucks going in and out like it's they're not growing their stuff under the pine trees like it's not (laughs) survivalist so it's it's you know i'm like the world has done badly but not so badly that you cannot have uh engineers hanging out and uh building a spaceship i mean there was some i think there's some reference in the movie about like the ceasefire that there's some ceasefire I think Lily talks about it in the ship. So, yeah, clearly, I, I mean, th- this kind of gets into something I was thinking about the movie. I mean, I, I think about Prisoner's Dilemma when I when I see this in Nuclear War and that there's this, there's a ceasefire that they've been able to cobble together um, mm. to allow themselves to kind of have tequila still being shipped. But it seems very tenuous because it seems like there's a, a definite incentive for any side to then just launch another weapon because... If you don't launch a weapon, somebody else could do it and kill you. And it seems like this, somehow, this Vulcan landing seems to break the prisoner's dilemma in some way. That the It's not really explained exactly how, but contact with another species causes Earth to just, everyone puts down the weapons and everyone says, Cooperate! Exactly. Yeah. So one of, one of my favorite uh, theories is uh, an idea called the overview effect. Have you guys heard about this? And I talked to Gable a little bit when we watched the movie. The, the overview effect is the idea it's astronauts when they return home from a mission, when they're in space, the idea of looking at Earth in its totality, you look at Earth and you start to think, wow, so we're really just this small planet in this larger universe that where I don't see the borders, the borders aren't drawn anywhere. And you start to have this feeling of, of oneness with, with humanity and people will, they'll come back and they're interviewed and across all these different, different countries that are, that are spacefaring all kind of have similar feelings. Mm-hmm. And it's this idea that, yeah, we're, we're together now that we're, we have, should have a common mission. And it's the pale blue dot, right? It's the exactly. Pale blue dot yes. Speech. It's, yeah. it's a, all that has ever lived and you know, all that you've ever known. And yeah. Well, it's weird. I, I mean, right. it's weird because I, you know, I think about this like the people that I know that, and you know, not to not to pick on anybody who who have kind of the most closed mindset are people who have like never left their hometown, right? And then you know about people who travel the world, right, and who have been to different countries, and they tend to have a broader mindset. And then you can extrapolate this to people who have left Earth and seen Earth; they probably have an even broader mindset. I mean, take that to the next level of meeting an alien. Like, what would that do to you? We're in fact trying to figure out what is cosmopolitanism today in the era of atomic bombs and um, uh, space travel and or space exploration. And I, you know, I'm very pessimistic about this personally, um, because if atomic bombs 
have not forced us to become cosmopolitan. And you remember, and you're a specialist, uh, uh, right after Hiroshima, a lot of the scientists involved in that and some politicians were like, one of the reasons we need to give the bomb to the Russians is so that everybody will be able to have bombs and therefore we're all in this together and we'll neutralize each other and something bigger and better will mm -hmm. come out of it. 50 years of Cold War and mutually assured destruction and, you know, game theory doesn't seem to have brought about this sort of practical cosmopolitanism that a lot of people were hoping for. Um, it's a negative cosmopolitanism. Like yeah. the, the, the effect of the bomb, you know, like nuclear tests for 20 years in the atmosphere impacted everybody, not just the people who were uh, studying nuclear bombs. So that's that's my lesson for the past 50 years. You know, and you see that playing out in the, the sort of global prisoner dilemma game that is global warming. And I, I bet you if aliens would were to come in today, like we would be fighting each other to be like the first guy who can sell them some <laughs> Right, uh, right. I mean, it's or like you know, the technology is mine. You know, it's, it's well. Sort that, of a... This was this was something I wondered. Like when when the Vulcans land and make contact, like why wouldn't you say, okay, teach me how to make great weapons, and I can yeah. destroy the other side. And maybe the Vulcans will be like, no, because they're Vulcans. But <laughs> exactly. They happen to be Vulcans. Imagine if they were yeah. not as uh, advanced yeah. and cosmopolitan. Imagine if the Klingons led or or, for, or Ferengi. Yeah, exactly. Oh. Ferengi, Ferengi, yeah. not Ferengi. Ferengi. Sorry. This is, <laughs> hey, this is why this is why I'm here doing the nuke stuff. This is why I got you guys here for the Star Trek. Oh yeah, I, uh, no, but I like I I really there is this sort of uh, idealistic notion in Trek that somehow the Vulcans will unite us. In the real world, you know, pro you know, maybe even, and I'm not a conspiracy guy, but maybe we have had some contacts with aliens and we were like, yeah, f that. I'm keeping that for me. You know, I mean, that would be the logical thing to do. Well, Manu, I mean, I'm curious because, you know, you write a lot about this, you know, in your book about getting to post-scarcity and how that changes things. I mean, from your vantage point, how does the meeting with the Vulcans tie into all of that? portion of Star Trek lore? Because it clearly is, is important in some way. How does it get us over the hump to this post-scarcity environment? And, and I'll add something here real quick. Uh, similarly, there, the fact that there have been other space-faring nations that have come in contact with the Vulcans, but you have people like the Romulans, the Klingons, the Kardashians... And others that Growing are up with the Kardashians. <laughs> yes, isn't it Kardashians? Yes. Kardashians. The Card Kardashians. But, but the Kardashians. I like the Kardashians. Are, no, also, uh, but all of these other civilizations that have gone through this uh, first contact ex exchange, but they're still very warlike, and I don't think they consider themselves to be a part of this utopia uh, oh, as much at all. Not. So why why was their experience different than Earth? I think it's the Vulcans. It's the Vulcans. Um, the Vulcans are these idealized, stoic humans. Uh, this, this is the Vulcans. You have to assume they're us, in the sense like the what is the best we could hope for as humans once we get over uh, our more base instincts or behaviors. You serve others and uh, you grow and become better yourself. That's the meaning of live long and prosper. You know the greeting, like live long and prosper. It's it's not like live long and get rich. <laughs> it's it's no, it's like uh, um, 
cultivate yourself. It's an injunction to cultivate yourself and to become a better person and to serve others. So this is really something that has more to do with the kind of normative ideals that the the creators of Star Trek wanted to convey. Like right. we can be better. We can and we and, and you know it comes from the sixties. It's it's we can be better through space exploration. Uh, there's this optimistic thing that you know. Peace through space or peace through nukes. I mean, yeah. it's the same. It comes from the same place. Peace through technology. It comes from the same place. And if you think about where Star Trek came from, it was born out of this time of Cold War, of uncertainty, of, I mean, it's maybe only appropriate that the birth of Star Trek, the Federation and Star Trek canon comes out of a similar place. So let's, let's get kind of meta here. Star Trek, the original series, and then Enterprise later on, all come from that same Cold War anxiety. Next Generation was a little bit after the end of the, the Soviet Union, which is a different philosophy here as well, but probably still some residual effects of, of the Cold War. Oh, um, but the next generation, man, there's a Klingon on the bridge. Working together. Yeah. Do you think maybe, not to to be mean to the current reboot, um, or maybe, I don't know what Discovery is going to end up being like, but do you think maybe that idea that, you know, we nuclear war le- led to Earth being a better form of itself and space travel as the thing that brings us together. Is that a message that's kind of lost these days because we don't have as much anxiety? Sure, we're worried about North Korea, but most people don't go day to day worrying about whether or not a bomb's going to drop on their family. Because that's gone, do we then just resort back to, all right, well, this is now an action movie because we don't have to worry <laughs> about those philosophical ideas anymore. I wonder about that because I still enjoy the new Star Trek movies, but there is something lost in that uh, type of storytelling. I think Star Trek has sort of dropped the ball on dealing with the real problems of today, which are, you know, I mean, which is global warming. And I don't see much of that in any science fiction. Oh, what, what about what about Dune? <laughs> yeah, but I mean, Dune is super old, man. And, and, and Dune is more, uh, is, isn't it like a sort of a, a fantasy about colonialism? Yeah, kind uh, of. With, yeah. with the spice. I mean, the, gotta get, gotta the get spice. that spice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, gotta get the spice flowing. Well, there's, um, that, one, there's that one episode of Next Generation where they, yes. it, yeah, they figure out that warp travel actually destroys, yeah, has environmental effects. That seems like the closest that Star Trek's ever gotten. Yes. Yeah, and in that, in that episode, they refer as well to nuclear winter. Oh, okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a... It's it's one of these. I mean, it's it's a faulty episode uh, uh, in the sense of it's hard to address such an issue in in and to make it personal. You know, it's easier to do the day after as a movie than to do flooding and uh, uh, things drying up everywhere. Right. Uh, that's that's I think the 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 complication with with global warming is that it's not as cinematic as nuclear war. I'll make my case um, that that Game of Thrones at least thematically touches on mm. some of those things. So I'm the person who wrote the article that dragons are nuclear weapons. Um, so oh, that's... Did, you read the, did you read the Vox explainer on this where they say Game of Thrones is all about uh, game theory and uh, cooperation? There's the article of Game of Thrones is all about dot, dot, dot. Yeah. <laughs> Anything has been done, which is cool. I, that's why I enjoy the stories very much. The idea of climate change is, a, I think, is a real thing. And it's not just funny that you know, the, the ice zombies represent climate change, yeah. but it's it's this idea that you're speaking to, that climate change is an issue. It's hard to grasp in your head the global consequence of this. And if it, 
humanity doesn't like to think about those things. There's a quote in the show about how human brains aren't meant to deal with problems that large. So we like yeah. to, we fall back on things that we normally would understand, which is fighting over who gets to control things mm. or fighting the Soviets or the Russians or terrorists, whoever we happen to be fighting these days or amongst ourselves. That's an easier problem to deal mm. with. And it's hard to come together, which I think Star Trek tries to do show a world where we have come together but they need the crutch of massive global destruction to to sort of make that more uh meaningful if you know yeah star trek was was just oh yeah and then you know the economy grew at two percent uh, every year for 200 years and then we sort of did it uh it's it's not that exciting uh so so, though... <laughs> so do you think if the vulcans landed in all right, so 2023 is the war, right? Uh, 2026. So let's say the Vulcans landed in um, 2000 and before World War III. I forget the dates here, but yeah. before World War III, if the Vulcans were to land here, would we have a similar? Or what uh, about if they land tomorrow? They land here tomorrow. Yeah. Okay. What if they land tomorrow? What, yeah. what do we do? Yeah. Um, well, the, the, there's Donald Trump. <laughs> they wouldn't clear uh, immigration, right? Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> build the no, do- build the dome. Build the dome. Yeah. Maybe they'd land in China. I mean, I I. But then you know the Chinese, they would be like, um, they contacted us. Um, <laughs> we are the natural leader of the human race. Yeah. Um, well, that, that's why one of my favorite Superman stories is the um, the Red Sun story, which is a kind of counter alternate history where instead of him landing in Kansas, he lands on a collective farm in like uh, I think it's Ukraine or oh, really? part, part of the Soviet Union. Wow. And it's a different, it's a cool story. I enjoy that one. You mean, and he becomes like a hero of the Soviet Union for uh, exceeding his quota? Is that? (laughs) He's, productivity is He got so much wheat. Yes. (laughs) He made so much wheat. Yeah. Um, Yeah, And he mined so much coal, like much more than Stakhanov. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, The nuclear war thing like bugs me. That's that's the thing. It bugs me in Star Trek because it wasn't. It comes from a certain place in the history of the show, but it's not necessary. Mm -hmm. That's the Mm. um, that's the thing. Like these mountaineer dudes, like who build the. You don't need a nuclear war. Actually, it's kind of a problem if you have a nuclear war to build like a spaceship. Building such a spaceship needs cooperation. It needs government. It needs, you know, research centers. It needs it needs crazy people like Elon Musk. It needs yeah. visionary government. It it should be a much more collective uh, affair. Instead of Vulcans coming in tomorrow, imagine a dude comes in with plans tomorrow and say, okay, I solved it. Here's a way to actually, you know, um, go to Alpha Centauri in a year. Uh I mean, it, it would break physics, but imagine right. this would happen. What would we do? Would right. we all marshal all these resources to do it? Or would it be sitting in the pile at DOD because, oh, we, we have other th- to deal with? Yeah, no, and I, I mean, that, that's kind of like the plot of that movie. Well, the Carl Sagan book, Contact, right? Where they get yeah. the plans to, to do that and... Um, and we do humanity rises to the challenge, so to speak. And I think thinking back to your book, Manu, I mean, we are living in this age of abundance and yeah. we have the ability to do these things. It's just that we have these other, you know, when you think about global warming, I mean, this is this is a problem that I think humanity is able to solve. Uh, what seems to be limiting us right now are these the institutional frameworks, the kind of political economy, the things right. like that. If Star Trek were to happen, I believe it the cooperation in the institutions will already have been there. 
I think in all logic, there should not ever be another nuclear war. You had mentioned the frustration you had about the role nuclear war plays in the Star Trek canon. And I think that was felt by a lot of other fans. There's this, uh, the Trekker Choice Awards. It was in September 1996. Paramount Pictures, as well as Microsoft, did this online vote where 250,000 people uh, on the 30th anniversary yeah. of Star Trek they all voted on, on like their favorite scenes or characters or catchphrases. And there was an award called the oft-heard but never seen award for the favorite historical moment only alluded to in Star Trek. And what won was the World War Three nuclear war. There's clearly uh, a frustration there uh, amongst fans. Yeah, it's the obsession about how did we, how do we get there? Yep. It's the obsession about how do we get to Star Trek society. Uh, so I'm willing to be a little lenient on this because I, I see Star Trek as a story that's not like a single movie, obviously. It's not even no. a single show. It's told over decades now. Right. Different writers, yeah. different showrunners mm -hmm. um, telling different stories, reflecting on contemporary themes. We talked about like cold, the Cold War, the end of the Cold War, post 9-11, uh, whatever Discovery may end up focusing on, which seems to be maybe some identity and politics. Yeah. For those who are not initiated, Discovery is going to be a new... Um, a TV show uh, coming out in September 2017. The latest Star Trek TV show after they've had about a 10, more than 10 year hiatus on TV. So I, I think because of all of that, it's I, even though I like to nitpick, it's at least reasonable why the nuclear plot is confusing and maybe mm. sporadic. Maybe the original, maybe, maybe Roddenberry didn't want to talk about this uh, as in much detail, but the people at the end of the Cold War um, that, that wrote The Next Generation, this was right on their, their minds, and they thought this would be mm. great levels of conversation. Um, they even invented things like um, in their own spin-on stuff. I, matter materializers are always the thing that interests me the most about that particular show, because there wasn't matter materializers in the original series, right? You mean the replicators? The replicators, yeah. The, re the, yeah, the matter replicators. Because I always thought that was... It's fun because... Do you make? Can you make another replicator with the replicator? How do you? Oh yeah, yeah. You can set, set things that you say you won't be able to build a weapon. But I think about this stuff because what happens if a replicator is used to make plutonium or uh, uranium or any other sort of weapon grade material? Because that's one of the biggest checks we have on preventing uh, yeah. any person from building a bomb is being able to get their access to this material or just. 3D printing um, a actual bomb itself. I don't understand why that isn't talked about in the Star Trek universe. Maybe there is some episodes about it, but you introduce an idea like that, you better have an episode on it. I just read an interview with Ron Moore about that, where he said that they were staying away from replicators as much as possible because it was the, the end and the death of all stories yeah. because yeah. you know like like i mean replicators are the foundation for the economics of star trek like suddenly nothing has value but if you want to tell dramatic stories on tv then it becomes complicated because you know what do you live for if i wrote seventy thousand yeah. words on this but <laughs> I, I got you I, I it's one of my favorite chapters <laughs> but, in your book i, I triggered you to get, talk about it yeah but it, but it's it's kind of a weird thing right you're right i don't see any reason why a replicator would not be able to make plutonium um also here's another thing plutonium-based weapons are fantastic like why don't they use them more i mean it, they seem better than photon torpedoes yeah. us, like we, at close range we, we got in that we got in that pretty deep in our star trek episodes that we did um last in, year right i mean it's sort of uh, that little one of these little you know plutonium-based thermonuclear thing like that 
probably is better in Babylon Five. So that's for the super nerdy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's Babylon our... Five is even nerdier than Trek. That's our listeners. <laughs> they they use uh, there's a there's a moment when they use a nuclear bomb against in space against uh, an adverse uh, an adversary much more uh, powerful. So that's one thing about Trek that I uh, uh, find strange. And yes, the replicators were always very problematic for storytelling or not. I mean, look at uh, uh, in First Contact. Like, So you don't see them using the replicators that much. And uh, yet the replicators are there, and but it's still a great story. First Contact seems a lot more about hardware of the time. And I mean, one of the things is this Phoenix, um, the actual yeah. missile, which is, um, it's pretty cool that they didn't just replicate a new one. They actually went on Earth and and helped uh, Zephyrin Cochran and his people build it. So cool. Let's yeah, I, let's get into that part of it. Yeah. That's our second uh, item of oh, discussion. Oh yeah. Why why didn't they use replicators to actually uh, uh, replicate the missing parts in the Phoenix? Yeah. When right. I... Maybe they were because they were fighting uh, on on yeah, okay. ship. Okay. But okay. I, that's a good question. It, on the ship, uh, when they're fighting the Borg, they. Apparently, Tommy guns are highly effective against the Borg because the Borg can't adapt to it. They are able to adapt to the frequencies of the phasers, um, the alternating pulses and all that. Why don't they just replicate some some handguns or some... Uh, uh, I believe that um, you get into trouble on a pressurized spaceship if you start using... (laughs) <laughs> but, uh, but maybe uh, but phasers are okay you can shoot you can shoot a wall with the phaser okay it's a special setting resonance yeah, right exactly hey yeah. th- that techno babble works for me all right this is good uh so let's let's get into the the phoenix talk uh yes. so the, the phoenix is a, is the ship it's probably right the most famous ship in the star trek uh other, other than enterprise oh, there, right okay, I, was well, I, I guess what i mean is like inside yeah. inside the world right people yeah. don't maybe the kids when they're they're learning and growing up they Maybe they don't know about the Enterprise, but they've heard of the Phoenix. Right. Yes. And uh, there's this great scene in the in the movie where Picard and Data. So Picard's the captain. Data's the android. Uh, but what is his role on the ship? Uh, exactly? Lieutenant Commander. Lieutenant Commander. So yeah. so they're together um, in their 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 garb of the time, their contemporary garb, which is mostly vests of with or without sleeves, but a lot of vests. And um, Picard, and I'll let you, Gabe, be Picard here, and I'll be Data. Isn't isn't it amazing? This ship used to be a nuclear missile. It is an historical irony that Dr. Cochran would use an instrument of mass destruction to inaugurate an era of peace. I like that idea a lot. It's a it's a fun. It's a f- nice, nice, nice. Thank you. I I've been told by many friends uh, that I'm robotic, so we're so well. Um, <laughs> my emotions chip is usually damaged, mostly in, in 2017. Um, so this idea of, of using former weapons of mass destruction or just weapons in general and transforming them into something different is this is this concept this swords into plowshares idea that you turn weapons of war into weapons of peace and i there's big examples of that like the phoenix in in literature and there's also tiny little examples like my my latest toy that i'm enjoying is a bottle opener that's made from the copper that was stripped out of decommissioned nuclear launch facilities you know when they got shut down they Someone bought all the copper and turned them into bottle openers uh, in the shapes of, oh. of, of atomic bombs. And it's a, it's called Beers Not Bombs. Uh, you awesome. can buy them on yeah. Amazon or from their website. I mean, it's, it's make love, not war, right? I mean, it's, it's very uh, – right? I mean, it's, yeah, it's, no, exactly, yeah. So I, I enjoyed the plot of this movie quite a lot. The themes are great, all of that. But I really geeked out on the idea that they used a Titan II missile in order to build the Phoenix – 
So I have a big question. Can yeah. Titan two, like without modification, not only go into orbit but beyond orbit? Because like they're on the trajectory that's beyond orbit. Like like they achieve liberation, right? So right. they didn't do that with Gemini. That was not the point, right? Right. So now you're, okay. you're, you're jumping ahead, but I, I, I think this is a great question to think about because it is um, a cool theme to use the, the weapons and mm -hmm. turn them into space launch vehicles. And we did versions of that in, in reality. So I think that's a good good um, thing to worry about and keep on the back of your mind here. So I'll just say that the Phoenix was built in the movie uh, with the, on the nose cone of a Titan mm -hmm. II ICBM. These are the, the big missiles that will travel all the way across the Earth and and hit their targets while they enter space before they, they land mm. uh, back on their targets. So this is a, a Titan II is a, a large two-stage liquid-fueled rocket. It was the largest that the United States ever developed and deployed in terms of its ICBMs. It was built by Glenn L. Martin Company, uh, mm. who now we know them as a company called Lockheed, Lockheed Martin, Martin. Yeah. after they formed together. Martin, Marietta, and yep. then... Exactly. Okay. Um, this is a, a, a really big missile. It has the throw weight of about 8,000 pounds or 3,600 oh. kilograms. And throw weight is the different definitions of it, but the idea is the payload. So okay. it's not just the weight of the missile. It's on top of the weight of the missile. It can carry this amount of material, which is usually a warhead and the delivery package mm -hmm. and the reentry vehicle. It can send that on a particular path. The more you can carry means you can have multiple warheads on them. The bombs can be bigger. The guidance packages can all be a little bit better. You don't have to be as efficient. Mm -hmm. So those are the big thought process behind why we decided to build and deploy such a large missile itself. And 8,000 pounds, that's what, like about two two or three cars, basically? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's pretty good for the, the weight that you would need to build a warhead and multiple warheads. So how do they fit like a something like the Phoenix on it yeah. that has yeah. two nacelles and then three people and the life support system and yeah, I mean it seems a little bit maybe maybe yeah. maybe you have to say it's a <laughs> uh, it's an advanced version of the Titan II that was developed. In, we don't know, yeah. yeah. Or they found some new fuel source that increases the capability. So, of... so the missile itself is about 103 feet long and mm. a 10 foot diameter. The Phoenix, according to um, things like Memory Alpha in the in the show in the show in, in movies canon is about ninety feet long by itself. Oh, okay. So they had to do some modifications to it. <laughs> so they used a real life Titan II missile that was you can visit yourself. It's at a um, museum in in uh, Tucson, Arizona. They filmed this over about four days while they were there. I think they had an idea that they were going to do a missile, and then the, the executive producer or some of the Maybe an intern found, hey, there's this missile that we can go check out. Uh, so then they went and, and filmed there. So they had to make some modifications to it so that it would actually fit together. I think what they did was they took the missile body and then put a fiberglass capsule on the top of it. And that was supposed to be the, the, re, the basically yeah, the Phoenix you, system itself. And in the cut, like you see, like they're... they're very few seconds where you see the full assembly because it's all like in the silo anyways. Yep. Um, the the but like yeah, ninety feet on top of a hundred feet in the real world, complicated, complicated. Yeah. Well, they did they use camera tricks and certain types yeah. of lighting to make the missile look larger than it actually mm -hmm. is. I think they recognize that as a problem, uh, but you know it's a cool idea to use this real life um, yeah. missile system as well. So the one thing that they probably got wrong, and that's again we don't know what Montana. what life was like. Hmm? Montana. Yeah. So they say it's in Montana. Uh, at, a, at a, some sort of missile silo in Montana. 
in, in the real world, in our world here, the U.S. Air Force planned for about 120 of these missile systems uh, to be mm-hmm. in, in place, but only 54 were ever deployed. Mm-hmm. And they were deployed uh, with 18 at a site in Little Rock, Arkansas. Oh, so they're the same as the one in Command and Control? Like yes. They, they're the same? Yep. Oh, my God. A- okay. Absolutely. So these are the same weapons. Uh, but so they, these are not good systems. <laughs> they're, they're very precarious. <laughs> But so not they, not something you want to be launching on the first warp. Flight. No, I wouldn't yeah. want to. Uh, but they were they were deployed in uh, near in air basically in Arizona, Arkansas, and Kansas, but never in Montana itself, where we have today in Montana at, at Malmstrom oh. Air Force Base. Uh, it's a it's a home of the 341st Missile Wing, the Air Force Global Strike Command, and that's where today we have a lot of our Minuteman three missiles. This is the current the current model. They're just announced last week. Um, the Pentagon has a contract out with a new firm to build the next generation of, of missiles. We're, we're geeks on the web and we know where the missiles are. Okay. So in case of nuclear conflict, global nuclear conflict, chances are the Chinese or, you know, whatever, the Eastern Alliance or something, they would know and they would have bombed the hell out of this. I'm surprised. Already. I'm surprised it's not a crater and I'm surprised it still has an unused, <laughs> un, unused ICBM. Why, yeah. weren't, why wasn't it used during the conflict? And they still have jukeboxes there. So, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, that's a good point. I mean, we know where the we know where silos are. We tell them where our silos are. It's part of uh, yes. transparency. Well, M- Manu, I, I was at Tim's apartment when we were watching the movie. I asked him this question, and Tim's like, "Oh, I have a book on this," and he goes to his shelf <laughs> that has like full of nuclear books, and he's like, "Here's a map of all the different silos, and you can tour them, and they're here." And, and I'm like, I- "I'm just in awe." Okay. Of, yeah. The, yeah. The, yeah. So uh, clearly, in China, they probably have a copy of this book. Yeah, I, I would think so. So it's it's interesting why they decided in Montana. I don't, probably because of the rugged scenery is a lot, mm. maybe a little bit better than having it in Kansas or Arizona or Arkansas. Maybe not as interesting of a you know landscape. But there is this fun little story that I I, I came across here. We actually talked about this on our Independence Day episode. We did one on oh. on the Independence Day movies in 1967. There was an, a mysterious event that took place at Malmstrom Air Force Base in Montana. This was a, a there was one of these missile silos that just went offline, and they okay. couldn't figure out what happened. It, they, not, the systems weren't working; they weren't able to communicate, and it was a very precarious time. The guys who were in the silo were freaking out why they their systems went offline. At the same time, people above the the silo um, command center saw uh, some mysterious lights in the air, and they mm. and. According to you know UFO watchers, this is an example of aliens visiting Earth, telling us one we can shut down your ICBMs and your missiles, so don't use them against us. Or two, trying to tell us, hey, you should stop these things, and then maybe we'll let you join the Federation if you get rid of all of your nuclear weapons. Oh, we'll, we'll invite you. Yeah, that that it. Yeah, it's a little overdrawn, right? I mean, maybe it was just like. Yeah, they they never figured out this one. No, like, I mean what happened? No, I mean, was, well, it was clearly the vault. It was clearly the Vulcans, yeah. right? That's <laughs> yeah. Well, there's or Q or somebody yeah, doing exactly. something. Um, Simple. I mean, I think the the official explanation was that the systems failed because they fail all the time. It's not the first time that something like this has gone offline, and there was something in the air. You know, who who knows what it was? Um, but mm. it's an interesting idea that Montana was chosen. After this particular story took place, where they're interesting, I, I thought I thought that was kind of uh, kind of neat. Um, Although the Montana they show in the movie is like clearly mountainous. Like, yeah. do, you, do you have any silos in mountains? Like, doesn't make it even 
any sense to do to build a silo because you could imagine you know in the next 30 or 40 years they're going to build a big base with big silos somewhere in the mountains right uh that's not easy to build a silo in the mountains from missiles like it's it's yeah i remember from the map most of them are in the plains right well they're right now they're in the plains uh, but it depends on the kind of system you wanted to create i mean if you wanted to do um, what what China does and what North Korea is trying to accomplish is that a lot of their missiles are on uh, trucks. They're yeah. they're mobile missiles, they, so they'll be on a truck. They'll go to into a location. The missile will raise up. It'll it might be fueled at that point, or maybe it's already has solid fuel, and mm-hmm. then it gets launched. Now you want these things to be you know moving all the time. The Russians would put them on trains. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have these mobile missiles, hide them in a mountain. So China has hundreds and hundreds of miles of mountains, uh, tunnels that they've mm. that they've dug it out just for this purpose, so that we don't know where all of the cave entrances are, I, which ones they're going to use. I, I again, being French, I say submarines. Yeah, <laughs> like, they, why bother? Just put them <laughs> in submarines. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, that's uh, the, Nor- the North Koreans are taking that advice, and they're also trying to build submarine-launched missiles as well. So, as you alluded to earlier, the Titan II missile system has a very interesting history when it comes to accidents. This is <laughs> not re- not totally the reason why they got replaced, because they actually were in service eight years longer than what they were expected to be, because of the fact that they were a very handy tool for the military, because of how big they were and how much they could carry. Um, but they were eventually uh, replaced by the Minuteman missiles in 1987. The last Titan II was deactivated in 1987, and the missiles were broken down and sold for scrap in 2006. So according to our world, these things don't exist anymore. When first contact was made in 1996, there were some deactivated missiles in storage in California and Arizona, but they would it would take a lot of work for them to be reassembled and... And all of See, that. I, 1995, when they were building the movie, the production, they didn't have such a powerful internet. Google did <laughs> yeah. not exist. I mean, that's, that's what happens. Google right. did not exist at yeah. the time. <laughs> um, but I, so, so the Titan II uh, has, as we mentioned, it's, it's a big weapon. It's two-stage, mm. and it's, uh, it's a liquid-fueled rocket. The rockets that we have these days are solid fuel that in, in the United States, and it's, it's good because it means that they can, it's fairly stable. It can mm-hmm. be launched within four minutes, essentially, once the order is given. It's, it, they're pretty quick. You don't have to fuel them because if you have to fuel a missile, it takes a long time because these are big tanks. And you can't mm-hmm. fuel them ahead of time because after a certain amount of time, the fuel is corrosive and it will eat away at the components. So the Titan II was an interesting uh, innovation because it had uh, essentially two types of fuel mix. That is, it's hypergolic, meaning if you put these two mixes together of liquid, mm-hmm. they'll they'll go off. That's great. It means that within 60 seconds they could be launched, but it's also incredibly dangerous. Uh, Hmm. These things can spontaneously erupt, and they did on a number of occasions. Uh, In 1965, 53 workers died in a flash fire that got started in Arkansas because of a a fuel leak. And the the instance that you were referring to later on about that's in the book uh, and now a documentary movie, Command and Control, in 1980, in Damascus, Arkansas, which I always think is funny that there's a place in Arkansas named Damascus, but in Damascus, Arkansas, a socket wrench fell 80 feet off of a maintenance platform, mm. punctured the missile's fuel tank, caused a leak, and a couple hours later, a gigantic explosion took place in the silo and destroyed uh, the entire silo and oh, killed wow. 
one of the airmen that was trying to to put everything out. Um, the explosion blew off the silo door. It launched up the second stage and the warhead out of the silo. The second stage exploded and propelled the warhead a hundred feet from the launch facility's gate door. That's from, terrifying. Yeah. So a nuclear weapon was just hurled out of this thing. Hurled out. They found the warhead. There was no radiation leak. There okay. was the bomb didn't go off, but it certainly, you know, you can no, see a world a, where it could. It, it, it's a testament to the quality of the design, right? That the the actual head did not go off or anything. Like, it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, that, Although this this missile was one of the ones that had a flash fire, a similar incident a couple of years before. So mm. yeah, it's designed great, and it, it's why you have these safety mechanisms. But hard to envision that never happening in the future. And it's also great that Cochran never dropped a wrench during one of his rock and roll benders yeah. uh, when Goodness. he was building it. Well, uh, that's why I think it's Lily who built it. Yeah, there you go. yeah, she's a little more stable. She has more yeah, stable hands. Yes, and diligent and serious. I mean, it's just also shocking to me too that given that it's so dangerous, that this actually did fly astronauts. And I think, Mano, you mentioned during the Gemini program, yep. they were they actually used this rocket to, to fly astronauts into space. So there's some precedent for sure. for the Phoenix. I mean, I mean, let, let, let's all admit, you know, like actually launching people into space is super dangerous. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's like, it's not something that's regular or normal or anything else. It's crazy. It's, it's strapping yourself to a bomb. And, and, it's, and it's expensive. So you want to reuse... Yeah. The parts that you might have left over from somewhere else. So, twelve of these uh, Titan II missiles were used in the Gemini manned space missions, and some of the big names in the astronaut world—people like Buzz Aldrin, James Lovell, Mike Collins, Neil Armstrong—all took a ride on on the Titan II. The Mercury missions before used Atlas ICBM. So again, uh, and, they used and Redstone and Redstone. Yeah. So that's. Well, I mean, it's it's the the past dependency, right? The, <laughs> yeah. We 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 had those missiles, so we put people on top of them. I love the fact, like, what I really like in in the movie is the the, the moment they launch with the music and the yeah. rock and roll and all that, and it's sort of you know it, it's shaking, and apparently, I mean, it gives a good sense of what it would be like to go on a rocket ride yeah. like this. Yeah. Uh, I think it's an homage in the sense to, to the, that. The oh. Titan, the Titan II, uh, was famous for having this weird vibration. Um, oh, really? That it was, it was, it was fine for missiles. It was within the, the margin of error, so they were okay using them. But when they got turned into uh, basically people movers instead of missile, <laughs> instead of warhead movers, they had to do some things to change that modification here. I'll list off a few of the things that NASA did to transform this into a a human space uh, flight machine instead of uh, a rocket one. I don't know much about what this means, but I'll list off some of the cool ones. <laughs> a malfunction detection system was installed. Okay. Yep. That's, that's good. Malfunctions are bad. Yeah, let's just let them know if things are working. And Gabe's a pilot, so he knows maybe some of these systems here. A lot of redundancy was added. In redundancy a, in is good. Yeah. yeah. The inertial guidance system was switched out with one that used radio ground systems, which allowed communications and adjustments to be made in a missile that's the, for weapons that gets launched up. That's it. There's no communication with the missile. You can track it, but you can't like send a signal to say disarm the rocket or something you would see in a Mission Impossible movie. They doesn't actually exist. There's no communication mm. with the missile. It's all one way. It's not two way. But you want to do that for a space one. Uh, the first stage of the rocket was loaded with 13,000 pounds more of the propellant than an ICBM, mm -hmm. so it could travel farther, as well as put more um, fuel so that it would burn longer. So you you asked earlier about whether or not you could break orbit with this. Well, 
Gemini didn't break orbit. The whole thing was putting no. a human in orbit. But I could see some modifications being made to the rocket. I'm not a rocket scientist. I, don't, I just pretend to be one on a podcast. But I could see some modifications being used with technology because they don't. There's no discussion if they fueled the rockets. They talk about theta radiation in the mm. in the movie that seems to be using, I guess, in the Star Trek lore, like anti gravity, anti matter, anti matter yeah. stuff. So maybe they use that tech instead of liquid fuel. I don't know. I, I it's it's. When you the footage, or at least in the movie, you see clearly like the second stage, and you know like the the fairings, like yep. the, the little explosions and all that stuff. So or the explosive uh, fairing release system, something like that. So it, it is, it's not antimatter in there. In the Phoenix, what the hell do they use? Like they don't have the lithium crystals. Yeah. Or I don't. I I. How do you generate a warp field? Right. Yeah. Well, that's actually. So Ron Ron Moore um, said that in the early stages of the script, they were thinking about something other than dilithium to power the warp ah. drive. He said that actually we we had talked about it being from something modified from the thermonuclear warhead that somehow setting off the fission reaction is what kicked it off. It seemed like uh, they didn't go with that, but that would have been yeah, that would have been very quite fitting. a thing. Now, so we talk about this in one of our uh, our episode on The Martian, the Ridley hmm. Scott movie, where there was this project called Project Orion. Oh, and, yeah, 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 yeah. I know that. Yeah, <laughs> so it, it used uh, like 200 small nuclear bombs to take something using the, the force from that. There'll be like a deflector plate on the bottom of the missile, and it would that was what, how it would get out of the orbit and break away from Earth's orbit and then also travel within space. You know, you do a little, you drop a little nuclear bomb in a capsule, it explodes and you, mm. it's like pushing someone away. Do you, th- do you think that one would vibrate a little bit? <laughs> a bit. There better, <laughs> better, there better be some shocks it's absorbing crazy. systems there. Like that's what's, when I see Ron Moore talking about that, I was like, maybe you did your research on that or. The weight that you would have to carry, the kind of pay- payload you would have to carry out of orbit, you know, to actually break the yeah. war barrier. That sounds to me a little. Uh, I mean, it's a dramatic present feature presentation. It's for fun and entertainment. There are some shortcuts, but that one's a big one. First of all, it's so it's as you said, it's a Titan II missile. Like your chances of actually putting this thing into orbit are like one in three or something like that. I mean, would you bet all your uh, <laughs> antimatter, you know, that you scrounged or something like? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, on such an unreliable system, they probably modified it and all that. But even then, I think that the weight of yeah, it sounds a little fishy. But we're nitpicking. We're nitpicking. Well, I also never knew how it landed back on Earth. Oh, that's <laughs> that. Yeah, because it didn't yeah, look like it, uh... or how it made course correction adjustments. But there, there is this really cool uh, discussion. Uh, I think it's in one of the some some behind the scenes, maybe in one, like a Star Trek magazine where the production designer, the artist who came up with the design for the Phoenix, said he wanted to combine things that seemed contemporary for 2063 with what we see in the future for Star Trek. And he had to modify things, and that's why he has the the warp drive engines on the side that come out from the rocket when they separate. And it it was a challenge for him to combine all of those things together. It's art. You have to... to, There's narrative license and artistic license. I mean, but when we look at it afterwards, like 20 years later, like, okay, guys, come on. You would, that's the other thing. You probably would want to assemble that stuff in space, like in orbit. But that means you need state actors, universities, training programs, blah, 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 blah. Probably not a global thermonuclear war 10 years before. Yeah. Why? I mean, that's the other thing. Like, really? 
there's been a thermonuclear war. Like, don't we have like other problems? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we're already we're already starting to get into what I call the parking lot movie discussion. So let's take our own time machine. We slipped into Skype has a feature for temporal vortexes. So we're we're 1996. We just saw the movie in the theater. Where before we go our separate ways, we're having a conversation about what we thought about the mm-hmm. film. Yeah. Um, uh, so we one of the things I, I like about Star Trek and this stuff is w- the time travel. Why do they seem to go to it so much, especially when they deal with nukes? You already mentioned how it's, it's a great contrast between the re- the problems that we have today versus the solutions that they've come up with in the future. Mm. Are there time travel plots that don't involve nukes in Star Trek? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. quite a lot. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the whale. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, no, but that, well, that's when they go looking for the nuclear wh- wh- whistles. Please, we're looking for the naval base in Alameda. Could you tell me where the nuclear vessels are? No- Ooh, I don't know if I know the answer to that. I think it's across the bay in Alameda. That's what I said, Alameda. Alameda. I know but that. But where is Alameda? Oh, vessels. Yeah. Yes, yeah. <laughs> nuclear vessels. Yes. Oh, yeah, that's true. They need the nuclear. They, they need the. Oh, okay. So that's why, like, they need the nuclear core to refuel their uh, Klingon vessel. And so you think, okay, so maybe that's what they had in mind when they designed the Phoenix for, yeah, okay. Maybe. Okay, maybe. now it makes sense. Okay. <laughs> so now, um, another another Star Trek plot that, that has time travel and not nukes. <laughs> no, I mean, in the episode, in the frequently, like, they'll want to go back to, like, uh, Wild West times or... Um, the Nazis. Yeah, they, mm. the time travel, I mean, there are episodes where they'll play with, like... Um, They'll have some chain of events that looks like the ship's going to get destroyed. I just watched an episode of Enterprise actually the other day where, you know, it looks like the ship's going to get destroyed and then they there's some time, you know, uh, issue and they're able to like somehow reboot the, the the timeline to where they were, that kind of and thing. And there's yesterday's Enterprise in right. Next Generation where, I mean, where, where there's a temporal vortex and there's an Enterprise from a different timeline. And so they play with timelines. I mean... They use that in the reboots, actually, you yeah. know, the timeline thing. Right, um, right, right. There's this this assumption based on physics that there's an infinity of possible timelines. So anything can happen dramatically, basically, which is kind of, eh, I'm not <laughs> so happy about that. Um, time travel episodes are a great way to explore what is Star Trek to us. Hmm today. That's, 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 it's a self-reflexive thing. It's about... How how do we understand Star Trek and science fiction more generally and what it means to us today? Can we be better? Should we be better? Should we cooperate? Uh, is the word she- like it would be interesting to have a time travel episode where they go and then they're like, you know, we're fine. Thank you very much. Bye bye. <laughs> uh, that's what I like about the movie. I, I, I also I'm not so much into the action Star Trek personally. Uh, and I thought, you know, the action in there tends to be a little drawn out, like. I don't really buy Jean-Luc Picard like <laughs> at the end. Yeah. Now, I don't like they really want to make it into like a super cool action movie. Star Trek is really not about action. Yeah. What I liked about it though is it didn't feel heavy-handed and it felt like no. it was almost like uh, if you have to feed your dog a pill, you, you wrap it in some cheese or ham or something. <laughs> it felt like this was a something to keep you know the masses happy, but there was actually a pretty good message in there about meeting what humanity was right before we had this epiphany. And and, and again, you know, Braga and Ron Moore, like the fans give them. Sh- 
and whatever, but these guys are like top-notch storytellers. I'm sorry to say, like this is a very square and very well structured movie yes. and takes us with by the hands and yeah. and there are light moments and and there are stakes and it's fun and it's exciting. And you know why we sort of uh, forget about all these little details like how do they come back to earth and stuff <laughs> like that? It's because it's so well written yeah. and so exciting yeah, that's that a good sort point. of like like in Star Wars is full of holes like that, but you don't pay attention because Right. Yeah, it's about the characters. It's not about the little gizmos. Unless you're Tim Westmeyer and you have a podcast about tearing, <laughs> tearing it's movies kind of apart. My bread and butter. Yeah. <laughs> and then you're super critical. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, you mentioned the the reboots for Star Trek. Do you think you know when they did Star Trek Into Darkness, which again I enjoyed as a film. I wish it was better, but I at least enjoyed it as a film. Uh, I had a good experience at the theater. But with this reimagined Wrath of Khan storyline that they that they did in the reboot, do you think? the reboots should do first contact cover it in some way talk about oh my god oh no <laughs> did i, re- oh, did, did I get something no no i personally i'm like the reboots you know they're all like super hypercharged super emotions daddy issues super actions like they never walk on the enterprise they run all the time <laughs> like it's it, it's you know and the lens flares and all that so yeah. as as action movies you know in the era of marvel i understand that's what they're competing with i, I i'm too old I, yeah. I that's that's i i guess i'm too old i i, I don't connect with this on any level hmm. um i i find that it, it hurts my brain. Is your it's, is your son old enough to enjoy Star Trek? Yeah, but he, he doesn't like violence. Okay. okay. He, like he watched the first ten minutes of Star Wars, like you know, New Hope, and he was like, I can't. So he's actually into the episodes of Next Generation that are like mind puzzles or but he's, he's like, Ah, the science is bull- he so, sounds he sound, he sounds too French, Manu. You gotta get him uh, it doesn't sound like an American child and <laughs> loves a good violent movie. No, I mean, you know, he's growing up here, and yeah. uh, but he's like that. Like uh, the action thing, like gets me tired. Like what you when you look at at uh, first contact, it's really the beginning of that era of super big action blockbusters all the time with lots of emotions and stakes and 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 it's done artfully. I mean, artfully because it's Star Trek and good writers, and they don't mm. try to turn them into superheroes or super villains. But, you know, what has come in the past 20 years is just mind-bogglingly tiresome. Mm. But, yeah, again, I'm old. I'm old. <laughs> it's just, it's just, and, you know, we know that the Star Trek Discovery new series is going to be more of that Game of Thrones in space type of thing. Yeah, mm. like, you know, the Klingons, the war, space. Are you going to watch it? Action. Uh, I professionally, I have to. <laughs> um, I think the best Star Trek movie ever is Galaxy Quest. Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, I love that film. That's a good one. Right? Uh, I mean, it's about yeah. the fans. Yeah. It's about yeah. us. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's very cool. All right, so let's do our rating system. Uh, we always rate it one out of five so that we can have a really consistent rating system, but also tailor it so that we get right into the detail. I thought here we should do one out of five warp speeds, right? So. 1.0 warp feed is fine if all you want to do is get noticed by some random Vulcans. But if you crank it up to five, then you can buzz the Vulcan home planet and make everybody on the on the planet spill their coffee during your flyby. Like, it's a pretty good one. I, I'll go quickly. Uh, I think I give this a four. I really enjoy this film. 
It's probably one of my favorite Star Trek movies. It's one of the ones that I enjoyed uh, when I was younger and watched it. And mm. I think it still holds up. There are these issues mm. with, with the film that we talked about, but I would re- I'd really recommend it. I think if you're a fan of Star Trek or these this genre of film and you haven't seen it, you're really missing out. Yeah, I'd give it a four as well. I think that's right. I mean, I think it's a solid film. And even from, from a perspective, perspective of a star trek fan i think it it hits all the right buttons and seems to be a crowd pleaser as well i i give it a four as well because i don't want to give it a five because the five is reserved for uh the whales movie and the motion picture yeah and Um, and, and nemesis (laughs) (laughs) um but i give it a a solid four because i love jean-luc picard and it's not because i'm french it's because jean-luc picard is a good person now how do you feel about the fact that um they they couldn't find a, an actual Frenchman to play. No, actually, they, they wanted the, this French actor. Like, Roddenberry really wanted that guy with a French accent. And the producers were like, oh, no. <laughs> and so they, they found, sorry uh, for the <laughs> Apple ratings. But the story is like, and then they, like, one of the producers was walking by at UCLA or something. And there was Patrick Stewart giving a lecture on Shakespeare. And I was like, okay, that's our guy. And so they, they sort of... Um, convinced Roddenberry that yes an Englishman was you know Shakespearean Englishman would would do the trick but the name is so good we can't change the name <laughs> you know where it comes from no uh, it's from the Picard family Bertrand Picard and all the like the guy who flew the first balloon like super high in the 30s then his son did the bathyscaphe huh and then the grandson is the guy who flew around the world in the solar? Oh yeah, that's uh, right. Airplane. Yeah. So you should. It, it's it's spelled Picard, P-I-C-C-A-R-D, uh, but it's it's come from that. The model of the elder Picard was the model for Professor Sunbeam in Tintin. That's oh, cool. Wow. Okay, I didn't know that. Very cool. So that's Star Trek lore for you, man. Well, you're already, you're already giving me some homework to follow up on stuff. So let's. I'm gonna do the same thing for our listeners. We usually have a segment where we talk about stuff to recommend, and all. And these will all be in the show notes, so people can get to them. Uh, the first is I talked about the overview effect. There's a book on it, the overview effect: space exploration and human evolution, written by F. White in 1998. I think this is a really fun read. It's one of my favorite books I read in high school. Um, it's a good one to check out. The second thing is a terrible but kind of fun TV movie from 1988 called Disaster at Silo 7. And it's about mm-hmm. the Titan II accident. Uh, it stars Peter Boyle and Dennis Weaver. So it's a it's a definitely a film I, I recommend checking out. It, the third thing is Command and Control, uh, which we mm-hmm. have talked about a number of times. Uh, but previously, it's a great source on nuclear accidents, uh, m- m- missile histories, all that stuff. But there's a documentary movie, in case you don't want to read. It's a huge, like, 500-page book. So I would check that out. It talks about this particular incident in Damascus, Arkansas, mm-hmm. as well as another other nuclear broken arrow incidents and things like that. Gabe, do you have anything you want to recommend? Yeah, I'll I to uh, avoid Manu having to engage in shameless self-promotion i will uh name his book trekonomics you. uh you should all all read it it's, it's an excellent treatment of star trek from a uh, perspective of looking at the society and how we might actually be closer to star trek today than you might imagine and uh i guess the second thing i would recommend is if you like um this ep- or the, if you like the movie to watch uh the best of both worlds which is a two-part mm. uh episode of star trek next generation that shows Picard being assimilated by the Borg and introduces the Borg. And I think if it really is the turning point for the next generation where it really came into its own and became its, mm. uh, yeah, asserted its independence from Star Trek, the original series, which it was largely compared to prior to that. Great. That's my kind of homework. What about you, Manu? Anything you want to 
recommend? Yes, actually. So it's it's more about uh, global destruction and and uh, the effects of global destruction and global catastrophes. I just finished this book called The Ends of the World by uh, Peter Brannan. And it's about the past extinctions and the geological um, uh, traces of past extinctions on Earth. Hmm. Um, and I think in a way this is the book that kind of closely resembles the day after for global warming because it tells us uh, through the geological record of what happened in the past extinctions and usually it was all caused by changes in the carbon cycle in the planet. Um, it's absolutely magnificent mm. in terms of the writing. It's also scary as f <laughs> um, I'm sorry. And, and it's, to me, this is the best book uh, this year so far. So, and I want to plug it because it hasn't gotten enough exposure and the writer is a fantastic guy and it's beautifully written. You should get, you guys should check it out. Absolutely. The Ends of the World by Peter Brannan. Yeah, that's a great title. The Ends of the World. Okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll check that out. Thanks. Thanks very much for, for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Uh, I'm Live going long and prosper. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to uh, send you a, a token of appreciation. This is a uh, 1990s pog from my pog collection no when way. I was a kid. I don't. We don't know what Klingon is on no it, way. but there's some kind oh, of Klingon wow. on it. So we'll send this to you. And, uh, yeah, and you can figure out who this yeah. is. So we can't. We were unable to determine. Uh, but thanks, Sorry. thanks very much. Where can people Thank find you? Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, where can people find you great. on Twitter and, and where else they can check out your research? Uh, I usually tweet at Treconomics, and that's about it. I don't really have Facebook or anything. It's just Twitter. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Supercritical Podcast. If you have any suggestions for future episodes or want to tell us what we got wrong, Star Trek or NukeWise, there are a couple ways you can contact the show. You can go on Facebook, facebook.com slash supercriticalpodcast. We're on Twitter at nuclearpodcast. And email supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, Manu and I actually got introduced over Twitter, so I recommend checking that as a way to engage the show. Until next time, this has been Tim Westmeyer. And Gabe. And my new Sadia. And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we're bound to get super critical about it. Have a good one.